What about them? Oh, you know why? The, the, the video I got? No, yes, you did. No, I was like, oh, this is, video is gold. And uh, let me turn it off. And all I have is like me going and putting it in my pocket. So once again, I only got... Uh, thank you. Thank you. I was very disappointed that I, I didn't capture all that. Um, all right, here we are in Hebrews chapter 2. And uh, we will pick up our study. Hebrews chapter 2, we pick up our study in verse 13. Um, we're going to focus on 14 through 18, as you see, but we're going to start reading in verse 13. So here we go. This is God's word, Hebrews 2, verse 13. Here we go. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Um, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, But he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And let's pray one more time. Father... May the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, we open with a very real-time illustration this morning. The real-time illustration is uh, this. Um, Millie Brummett, I think you know, uh, if you weren't at the party last night, Millie Brummett had a mild stroke this week, and uh, she's okay, and she's home with no deficit that is known and and all that. But uh, so late in the day Friday... Uh, Sam sent me a message that Millie was going home, and I thought, man, I'm going to alert everybody and get the news out on that, and I get online, and our exchange server's not up, and uh, it dawns on me that that is a, an atom bomb of a disaster. If our exchange server isn't up, there are going to be no screens on Sunday morning, so there's going to be a, a thousand people staring at a blank wall all morning long, and I got a little kid rehearsal after church in about exactly two hours from now, and I need that. Uh, file. And so uh, normally I save a backup. I didn't this time. The exchange server crashed. And uh, uh, so going into driving to the party last night, I was on the phone with Comcast. Jason Rickenbacker had been up here. Brent was on the road. I'm on the phone with Comcast trying to play a little bit of hardball. I'm going, hey, Comcast, uh, when when a thousand people stare at the front wall and they say, what's wrong? I'm going to say Comcast. And, uh, (laughs) and, uh, Well, it turned out it wasn't their fault, and so I felt kind of bad. But anyway, uh, you know, no one ever wins with hardball. But my point is, uh, on the steps walking into the Milligan house last night, I was on the phone trying to help solve this, on the steps going in. And so the whole party, I was thinking, tomorrow could be a huge disaster, and I had no idea the status of the, the screens. On the steps on the way out, I get word that everything is fine. It's all been restored because of the work of Jason Bachenricker. Uh, and Brent Wilkins comes in here and he's messing around in the thing over here and he's working on the modem and the server and the connections and the signal flow, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, all that to say. Um, 
One of the reasons I was so passionate with Comcast is um, I can't have a potential fix. I got to have an actual fix. And uh, Comcast, they were very professional and kind, but uh, it was one of those, well, we'll have a serviceman out tomorrow sometime between 8 and 12. And I'm like, that's not going to work if he comes in with a donut at 11.15. We got to have it fixed. It's got to be fixed. I got to have a real fix, not an actual fix. And, you know, in practically speaking, what's the difference to me personally? The difference is how I can rest. Am I going to be able to put my head on the pillow and actually rest in the fact that it's been accomplished? Or am I going to have a lack of rest? That's the difference between a potential fix and an actual fix, right? Well, here's how that applies and plays into um, our situation here today. Um, it's taken right from the, 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 the text, and uh, it, uh, it refers to the book of Hebrews uh, and the, the, the situation the people are in, and it refers to the gospel itself too. Um, let's look at our main point here. The only help that matters is an able one. Right? We don't pray to some God that we hope hears us and we hope can help us and maybe it'll all work out. Maybe we're eternally secure. Maybe God's intervening. Maybe he hasn't uh, lost attention uh, toward us. Uh, an actual help is what we need. And an actual help in the gospel is what we get in this Savior. That's right from the passage. Um, he is able to help us. God actually helps all right? And so that's taken smack out of the passage in front of us. So let's go to the main idea here and the, the first, the, the first of, the, of the sermon points, which is death of death. Let's look at verse 14. Um, it says in uh, chapter 2, verse 14, uh, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same Things now we'll expand all that in just a, a minute. You know, it goes, it goes on to talk about death being dealt with um, and uh, the power of death being destroyed and so on. We'll expand that in just a bit. But notice what notice that it pulls in what we talked about last time, two weeks ago. Um, look at verse ten again. It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, that idea of it being fitting addresses several things. First, and specifically per the text, it is um, Jesus being sent to the cross. It was fitting to the Father uh, to do that. And by the way, it was fitting for Jesus to do that too. And uh, before you go, oh, yeah, yeah, the Trinity, I get it. That's true. Um, But let's finish the thought. Look at verse 10 again. I'm going to read all of verse 10. It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And uh, that's a profound idea, ladies and gentlemen. That's That's not something you just read and go, oh, well, that's very interesting. The gospel is very interesting. Jesus made perfect through suffering. Now, how exactly was this fitting to the triune God? The answer is this idea of making the Savior perfect 
through suffering. And as we said last time, that kind of takes a thoughtful believer kind of off guard a little bit, doesn't it? When you read something that uh, Jesus was made perfect through suffering, the founder of their salvation, Jesus, was made perfect through suffering, um, that, that kind of tends to make our souls kind of reverberate a little bit because it seems to imply that uh, Jesus had to become something at best or that Jesus lacked perfection uh, at worst. You know, we don't know, quite know how to take that, that he was made perfect and made perfect through suffering. What does that mean? Well, fear not, friends. I cite a verse to you that uh, will be familiar to you. Um, 2 Corinthians twelve nine. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, that's a a familiar verse to you. That's a comforting verse. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Now, friends, isn't God's power already perfect? Is it? Yeah, of course it is. Well, what does it mean here? The idea is that God's power is applied and is realized, right? Uh, In other words, in our weakness, we finally get it that God, God is what we needed all along. We felt like we were in control. We felt like we kind of had the, the, wheel, the ship's wheel of, of life. Uh, we felt like we had it under control. In our weakness, we go, oh, now I get it. I'm not in control. God is in control all the time. I need him all the time. And in that way, we have a more complete uh, realization. Um, and so that's kind of the idea here too. In Hebrews 2, the idea of Jesus becoming perfect doesn't mean that he wasn't perfect and he was made perfect. The idea is that uh, he had to be made like us in every respect, it says in verse, um, where is it, 17a. Um, he, uh, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Look at verse 14. Um, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood... Um, Jesus becomes like us, and you could say that in Jesus becoming, uh, being made perfect through suffering, you could say it this way, that he um, was made completely eligible. Does that make sense? He was made completely eligible to be our Savior stand-in. It wasn't possible for the holy courts of heaven to be satisfied without a payment for sin. It wasn't possible for the holy courts of heaven to just kind of wave some kind of magic wand and go, oh, you know what, sin doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter if justice is handled. Um, uh, The holy courts of heaven can't just kind of look away and pretend like sin never happened. It it just can't be. God couldn't simply decree it. God couldn't simply say, well, you know what, everybody? Listen, your sins are forgiven. Let's just forget about it. Everything's fine. He couldn't decree that. You know why? Why? Because he couldn't be untrue to his own self. He has, to be rem- he has to remain true to his own perfect, holy character. He couldn't compromise his own self. Thus, verse 14, Jesus became like us in every respect. He partook of the same things. He became flesh and blood. Now, let's look at this again. Um, it says... Um, yeah, he became like us. Um, that's Jesus. But look at verse 10. It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, who's the he there? Who's the he? Uh, God the Father. 
Um, it was fitting for God the Father. You know, you look at the previous verse, um, because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he, the he there is Jesus, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation. Who's that? Jesus. So you get it? It was fitting for God the Father in saving us, the needy, to take the founder of our salvation, which is Jesus, and uh, he becomes like us in every respect. So let's apply that for just a second. How did Jesus become like us? Well, uh, in some ways, in several ways. One of those ways is in verse 14. It says that he took on flesh and blood. All right, so he became, he partook in um, becoming a human. He partook in human stuff. He knows what it was like to live a human life, to have a human body, to be hungry, to be tired. He knew what it felt like to be betrayed. He knew what it felt like uh, to live a human life and to, to feel the rigors of it. Um, you know, it's a, I'm straying from my notes, but you know, when Lazarus dies, he knows he's on the way to go heal Lazarus. He knows he has the power to do that. He knows. And yet, when he sees the grief of his friends, what does he do? He weeps. Isn't that profound? He knows he's going to bring Lazarus back to life, but he feels what it's like to be human. He feels the grief of, the, of, of his loved ones. He feels what you and I feel. He, he knows. And so that, that's, that's part of the answer, being made flesh and blood. That's part of the way that Jesus became like us. But here's another. In verse 18, it says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So yes, flesh and blood. He became flesh and blood. He became as we are. But he was also tempted as we are. And of course, the difference is uh, Jesus withstood Our lives, ladies and gentlemen, not perfect. Uh, I teared up over this as I was writing it. Our lives, not perfect at all. Not perfect. Um, Jesus' life was perfect. It was a perfect life, a perfectly lived life. And because um, it was a searingly, uh, pristinely, perpetually perfect, perfect life, human life, he was eligible to be our sacrifice. He was made perfect to be our sacrifice. He was a complete, um, a complete relation to us. Uh, he was flesh and blood as we are. It was fitting then that God the Father would cause him to suffer. All right, so let's answer that question. He's made like us. He lives an absolutely perfect, pristine human life. He's an eligible sacrifice. Why then, ladies and gentlemen, why, oh, why, was it fitting for God to make his son suffer? Why was that fitting? You know why? The wages of sin is death. That's why. You deserve the wages of sin. That's what we deserve. Hey, I worked all day. I want what's coming to me. Worked all day. I want my wages. Well, guess what? You deserve your wages. We deserve our wages, and the wages of sin is death. 
verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Because the wages of sin is death. Now, let's talk about that word propitiation. Because uh, if you've been around Christianity for any length of time, uh, you've probably heard that word. Um, in fact, you probably heard someone teach or explain the word propitiation to you sometime in your lifetime, maybe a number of times. In fact, raise your hand if you've ever heard someone preach the word propitiation, all right? You've heard that. It's a Bible word. It's in the Bible. Um, but I think I got you figured out. Um, isn't it true that you hear someone preach on that and, and you're like, okay, yeah, um, I've heard that talked about and taught and uh, it's still kind of fuzzy. Is it still kind of fuzzy? Uh, you hear that word propitiation and you're like, oh, uh, that's an important Bible word. And there are like syllables and, uh, and I know I should know that. And you nod your head, you go, oh yes, praise the Lord. He made propitiation for our sins. And you're like, yep, that's a good thing we celebrate it. And you're like, what, what the heck does that mean again? I uh, have you? Okay, well, let me, let me uh, oh yeah, here's what R.C. Sproul says about it. He says, uh, I'm often asked to explain the difference between propitiation and expiation. Okay, both a couple of Bible words, you know. He says, the difficulty is that even though these words are in the Bible, we don't use them as part of our data vocabulary. So we aren't sure exactly what they are communicating in Scripture. We lack reference points in relation to these words. That's why propitiation is such a hard word. You don't say that in normal conversation. Um, it's kind of an archaic word, and it's trying to convey a deep biblical meaning. That seems to be the best English word for it, all right? So here's an easy way to think about it. What, what does pro mean? If you're pro something, you're for it, right? I'm pro hot dogs, you know? I like hot dogs. I'm for them. I'm for hot dogs, all right? Oh, if you want to make it into a more serious note, you say, I'm pro-life. I think that God is the giver of all life, physical life, spiritual life. I believe that God made me, made human beings equally, race, skin, time period, culture. He made human beings in his image, and life is important. I'm pro-life. I think God is the keeper and giver and definer of what is human life. I'm pro-life. So you understand that. I'm for life. I'm pro-life. Well, you see that that has to do with my attitude, right? I, am, I personally am pro-life. I personally feel a responsibility for life. That's my, my heart attitude toward it, right? Well, that's the idea with God. He's pro-us. It's pro-pitiation, He's for us. He's disposed toward us. It's, an, his, it's his attitude toward us. And listen, that's the gospel. You're, if you're pro something, I'm for something. That's the gospel in, in that God is for you. That's a good, encouraging gospel message, isn't it? Especially as we're, as we're coming up on Christmas. God's for you. Um, you know, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross... Um, is made 
for you. Um, in other words, he lovingly, graciously, attentively deals with you, this God. He's in your eternal camp. He's for you. He's with you because of what Jesus did on the cross. Uh, yes, the cross takes care of the sin problem in that the sin debt is paid for. An act takes place on the cross. Something's taken away. Your guilt, it's taken away. That's expiation. X, it's taken away. But propitiation, propitiation means because of the thing that happened on the cross, because your guilt has been taken away, God's attitude toward you is different. He's pro you. And the shorthand for that is grace. Does that make sense? So when you read the word propitiation for the rest of your life, if all you remember is pro. So next time a, guy, a guy's up there going, yeah, propitiation, blah, blah, blah. You can go, ah, at least I understand. God's pro me. He's for me. His countenance toward me is gracious because my guilt has been taken away. His wrath has been placated. It's true. And now he's pro me. Now, let's apply that and to our sermon point here. I, I think you're going, oh, death of death. When are we going to get to that? Here we are. Look at verse 14 again. Um, he says, um, yeah. Hmm. Uh, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Oh, excuse me. I'm in the wrong chapter. Still good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and it still makes sense, too. That's even more confusing. You're like, oh, that's, oh I'm in it. Um, here, here it is. Verse 14 of chapter 2. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Here it is. That through death, his death, his physical death of a human life perfectly lived, through death, through taking the accursedness, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. You know, guys, um, um, John Owen has a... Anybody ever read any John Owen? Um, super, super duper smart, super hard to read. He's got a big, long set of I don't know how many books. Do you know how many books are in the John Owen? It seems like you would for some reason, but, uh, but <laughs> no, no pressure. But I think it's volume 10 uh, is, is, has been singled out many times. I think it's volume 10, and it's called uh, uh, Death of Death. And uh, that's really the idea here is this death of death. And you know, we sing a song, Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah. Guide me, O Thou Great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. Well, one of the lines that we sing in there is this. Death of death and hell's destruction. Well, where do you think the hymn writer got that lyric? Right there. Death of of death. By Christ's death, he destroyed the power of death and our imprisonment to our fear of death, which held us in slavery for a long time. That's the idea. And uh, I want to read to you um, a really good quote here from this commentator. Um, what's his name? Phillips. Somebody Phillips. But uh, check this out. I just thought this was... Oh, check it out. Listen, listen. Death 
is not merely an event that awaits us, but a power that rules us now. The leaven of futility that permeates all our achievements and denies our souls peace and contentment. This is saying that death is not just this thing that's going to occur to a human life. It will to everybody. But he's saying that it's a power that rules us. It permeates all our achievements. It denies our soul's peace and contentment because we go, oh, I did this thing. Oh, what, how, how fulfilling in life that I've accomplished this thing, yet death awaits. Oh, how fulfilling that we have poured our lives into our children. Oh, it's so wonderful that we've afforded them an opportunity, yet death awaits. I mean, it's a very sobering thing, especially in the midst of Dalton's funeral this week, Dalton Downing a 20-year-old guy who died in a hiking accident. I mean, you feel that, don't you? Uh, you feel it acutely. You go, man, I'll tell you what, he was 20 and he died. But uh, tack on another 64 years or so, and, uh, you know, it awaits us all. It just, it's, it's, this, it's this dark, wet towel that has descended upon our humanity, and it holds us in, in, in prison. But Jesus Christ destroyed the power of death. I mean, we have a living Lord, a Lord who is not defeated, but a Lord who is resurrected and ascended and now dynamically ruling and reigning. A living Lord. Does that not change everything? Having a living Lord changes everything because life isn't just this narrow band and we disappear. You know, I follow, I follow a lot of non-Christians on Twitter, some interesting people, some funky people, some brilliant people. But um, uh, quite a few of them, uh, non-Christians, have expressly referred to themselves as meat bags. And you know what I respect is the honesty. I mean, if you don't believe that you've got a personal God who's uh, personally interested and you don't have a personal Savior who's living, then what else are you but a meat bag? I mean, it, that's, it's a... It's a it's almost a profane way to think about it. It's anti-design. But is that how you think of yourself as a meat bag? And you live in this narrow band and it's all over and doesn't really matter fatally? No. Our experiences do matter. Our suffering does matter. Our interpersonal relationships do matter. Our life experiences do matter. And our, our memories and our personalities don't just evaporate. They're a part of our grace story. We'll celebrate our grace story. We'll remember God's dealings with his people in grace forever. We will. We'll remember this conversation. We won't lose ourselves. Does that not change everything? It's because of a living Lord who has destroyed death and that blanket that lays over us. Yes, physical death awaits us. But friends, an eternity of felicity and bliss is greater than that. And even greater than that, presently, we have a God who hears us and cares about us and never leaves us. That's an, that's an amazing thing to go through life with. All right, our last point, and this is brief. Really, I could have folded everything into one point, but I did want to highlight just a couple things here because I just, they just seem so, they are. They're so personal and uh, important and meaningful. Um, these words, I, I just think it's interesting. In verse 17, it says, therefore, um, Jesus, the uh, founder of our faith, the author of our faith, the champion, 
the forerunner, the pioneer, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Now notice, it could say, so that he might become our high priest. It could say that. It would be totally accurate and true. But the Bible goes out of its way to say that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. And that just stood out to me. Why is the Bible so careful to say um, uh, merciful and faithful high priest? Why doesn't it just say high priest? Rather, we have these two adjectives. Um, You know, um, this is from uh, Habakkuk, I believe. I forgot to put the reference in here, but listen to this. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. Listen, in the midst of the years, make it known. In your wrath, remember mercy. That's what God has done. In his wrath, he has remembered mercy. And we have the Savior who's who's merciful, this high priest who's merciful. And I think that speaks to his divinity too, right? That he's able to show us mercy. He's divinely showing us mercy. Uh, He himself is accomplishing a work of mercy. And you know, it it ties into verse 18 too, uh, when it says that, um, 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 yeah, for uh, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus is uniquely, personally merciful. He understands us in a profound way. Not that he wasn't merciful before, but he was made like us in every respect. And the application for your life, friends, is simply this. Jesus feels you and he understands you. Our Savior is merciful. He understands the misery that comes with sin. Sin hurts us. Sin drags us down. Death in this life is, is, is a trauma that just doesn't happen once. It just reverberates through our personality. We carry it our whole lives. Jesus feels it. Hey, um, raise your hand if you've ever had plantar fasciitis. Okay. Well, guess what? I know what that feels like. I know what it's like to go, hey, what's going on? And to have a thing like this and to go to the foot doctor and to have things put in your shoes. And I know what it's like to wake up in the morning and uh, groggily put your heel down on the floor and go, ah, it feels like a nail's gone in your heel. I know what that feels like because I've had it. The rest of you are going, oh, what's the big deal? Well, just wait, you know? (laughs) All it takes is stepping off a curb a little bit funny and you're like, hey, I got it by racing my wife to a mailbox when we were walking around our old subdivision. I'll race you to that mailbox. I was wearing hiking boots, and, you know, I gave her a head start, and still, you know, I was, you know, like a racehorse. Uh, hey, baby. <laughs> you know, you have to impress the girl every once in a while, and I did, and then I had plantar fasciitis for a year after that, so <laughs> not that impressive. But my point is, I understand it. So when somebody says, I have plantar fasciitis, I go, oh, I know what that is. Every aspect of your life, anxiety, fear, trepidation, hurt, betrayal by somebody close, Jesus feels all of it. He's a merciful high priest. Temptation, battling it, battling it, resisting it. It's so hard. Jesus feels it. He's a merciful high priest. You know what else he is? It says he's a faithful high priest. You know, what, you know what that means simply? In, in shorthand, it means you're safe. 
In shorthand, it, it means basically our main idea. The only help that matters is an able one. Jesus is an able help. He's a faithful high priest. That means you're guaranteed to be okay. And so uh, you don't have to lay in bed uh, wondering if the Comcast guy is going to show up in time. You don't have to toss and turn and go, I hope we have a help. I'm not really sure if it's going to work or if it's going to be a total disaster. You don't have to lay in bed and think about your soul that way. You can lay in your bed and you can go, I have got an able help. I have a faithful high priest. He's mercifully understands me in every respect, but he's faithful. And that can give your soul assurance uh, in this life. It can be rested upon. Last thing is I'm going to read you one little quote here. And this is from uh, really one of my favorite commentators ever. In fact, when we taught through the gospel of Mark, I used his commentary on Mark, and it's probably one of my top favorite commentaries ever. And you might look at it and flip through it and go, eh, what's the big deal? But when you were in it a long time, this guy really is good. His name is William Lane. Uh, He's a New Testament scholar. But he says this, apart from the intervention of God, hopeless subjection to death characterizes earthly existence. All right, so you live this life. Let's say you have no belief in God. Let's say you go, oh, it's my parents' religion, and I don't really know if I believe my parents' religion, and I haven't embraced it in my heart. Okay, well, you know what you've got? What you've got is a hopeless subjection to death. It characterizes your earthly existence. Because you go, hey, if I'm just a meat bag, and I'm going to leave this earth anyway, then what does, it, what does anything I do matter? Oh, Ferguson, who cares if you're a meat bag? Who cares about you or anybody else? Oh, justice. So what if you're a meat? Just be honest. Go kill somebody. Go rob a store. Go embezzle some money. What does it matter if you're just a meat bag? Who cares? That's what characterizes your life. But he goes on to say, um, oh, yeah, check this out. An awareness of the reality of death is exhibited in feelings of anxiety. That's a, that's, a, that's a hard way to go through life. This teaches the remedy that you've got a faithful and merciful high priest. He understands you. He faithfully has accomplished something for you. And in that, ladies and gentlemen, your head can hit the pillow and find rest. You can, you can feel the experiences that you're going through and you can see the meaning because of this Savior. You've got a help that's not just potential, but able Let's thank him. Lord Jesus, um, you are God. And uh, because of what you accomplished on the cross and because of God's sweet intervention into our lives, his loving kindness expressed in the sending of Jesus to save us, life all of a sudden is burgeoning with meaning. All of a sudden, as human beings, we find the value of our existence and uh, we find the great remedy of the sin problem The uh, wet blanket of death has been lifted. Uh, Yes, we face a moving from this life into the next, but it's a moving into your presence. And it's a presence we enjoy now, but we'll enjoy in greater fullness one day. That is an able help. It's a reason to be joyful in this life and to move toward a celebration of our Savior's entrance into this world. We pray these things in his name uh, with confidence and joy for our lives and for our loved ones who have gone before. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thanks, everybody.